This is Watson Jordan. I lead the Resilience Initiative, where we research and promote resilience from around the globe and back to you. Our big idea, we can develop resilience. Our promise, we will show you how with inspirational stories and straightforward ideas. Leadership, strength, and energy create the backbone of season four. Together, we explore how 12 women are leading teams that are changing the world. With each episode, you learn what fortifies their resilience in the face of adversity and what energizes and connects their teams. Today, we're joined by Magdalena Walhoff. Magdalena is a former executive and entrepreneur and the ethics lead for the Swiss Artificial Intelligence Lab. She lived for many years in the U.S. tech hubs, Asia and Europe. After a career as a global executive and board member on various nonprofits, she now sheds light on the nature of ethics from various cultures and perspectives as the Global Ethics Board at Lab 42, which is, Lab 42 is a global AI lab committed to positive technological progress for the benefit of humanity with AI that can reason and learn like humans. The resulting tools could ignite humanity into a new golden age. Her role at Lab 42 is to question how we get to a healthy outcome with AI and not a dark one. Well, welcome to Hashtag Resilience, Magdalena. We're thrilled you've joined us today. And we really, we really applaud your work to make it not a dark one. So, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are you excited about? What can we applaud and support? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I like that, you know, that you have this focus on resilience because I think that is absolutely necessary at all stages in our lives because there's only ever change. And um, the fact that we have resilience keeps us alive, right? And the more resilience we have, the I think the more enjoyable life is. Um, my own journey has required quite a bit of resilience, but also I've had a lot of change just in my own work. I used to be in seafood, um, working in places like Honduras and Mexico and selling to the likes of Costco. And now I'm looking at ethics um, around artificial intelligence. So um, I think all our experiences inform other experiences that we have and prepare us in ways that we don't expect. And when it comes to AI, you know, things are not that clear, even though it's ones and zeros and programming, <laughs> um, the implications are anything but but that simple, right? The implications are anything but black and white. So we actually have to have some people who who have lived in the more gray world, right? So yep. I work with a bunch of people who are programmers and I appreciate so much what they can do. I could never, um, but they maybe have never had to deal with, you know, uh, seven different cultures and 10 different languages all in the span of one month trying to <clears throat> solve problems for, excuse me, a company and um, being sensitive to what makes a team run smoothly or um, what does it really mean to be human or how do humans really flourish? Um, so that's that's my role at Lab 42 is to 
to balance out the whiz brains right. with some, yeah, some of these more gray subjective questions that are just as important. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to, it's hard to do everything. So if my, yeah. if my task is really to um, program something beautifully, that takes a lot of focus and energy and attention and it, it's not easy. So a real question from another field in this case about lightness and darkness, about ethics, about how does this, how does this fit together with our bigger world? It's, it's hard to do both of those at the same time. Um, so I think yeah. really important to kind of have, you know, a bigger, a bigger team. Well, exactly. And, and to realize that there's, we need the experts and then we need some generalists, you know, sometimes I felt a little bit, um, not frustrated, but also a little bit surprised by my own journey that I've, I've done so many different things, but not necessarily, uh, gone very, very deep into any one of them. Uh, so I would, say, but then I also realized, no, there, we have a need for generalists who stay somewhat on the periphery of things so that they can, that they can span the, the chasm and connect the dots and give the insights that we lose when we're deep inside. Yeah. You know, sometimes you think about it kind of a, what's your perspective, you know, is it a foot above the ground or is, is it from 30,000 feet? You know, how much forest do you see? How much, how many trees do you see? And having that variety of perspective, I, I think helps us. And it, you just can't, you can only be in one place at a time. Well, mm -hmm. our first question is, uh, what's one question that you've always wanted to be asked? This is always kind of a fun place to start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's the question, how then shall we live? Given everything that we have and all the opportunities we have, how should we live? And that's a question I'd like to be asked, not because I have the answer at all, but because it's <laughs> something that we should be asking, right? Because I think, um, especially now with, sometimes with AI, I think we, we don't necessarily come to the right answers, but we do have to be asking the questions. So this question actually drives my own life, like how then shall we live? But I would love to be asked and then be able to say, I'm not sure, but let's look at it, right? And then let's have these conversations and have these debates even about what we should be doing with our resources, right? Our, our, everything from our love to our um, natural gases, like how do we spend all that energy, right? Um, and I don't think that's something that our world asks itself enough. We have lost that philosophical bent. Yeah. And one of the things I like about that question is it it has a chance to be asked globally. Yeah. Um, which and getting the globe to think and act globally is quite the ongoing challenge. Um, hmm. You know, when I heard that, I went, well, we should live simply and generously. So if you were going to yes. if you were going to answer that, what would you say? I think exactly that. We should live with much grace 
and and principle like we should have we should ask ourselves what are our principles and what does it really mean to live well right and it's not going to be luxury luxury and consumption even those even though those things are impressive and those belong to the human story as well i think ultimately it is about um living within our means but even even personally right like putting our energies into things that are right in front of us and not with constant dissatisfaction. So it is this, it is a certain simplicity and that sounds so cliche, but it really is that I've just recently moved up to the Alps in Switzerland into a village with eight houses. And um, there is. Uh, and you, you, you mean literally there are eight houses. There. there are eight houses. They're all at least 500 years old. Mine is original 500 years old and didn't even have insulation. I put it up myself. Um, but, you know, I, I once had a penthouse on Miami Beach, right? And <laughs> flew everywhere in the world two, two weeks a month. And now I'm here and I'm observing these people. Some of them have been here 500 and 600 years, some of the families. And they built their own houses back then. And they're still in it. And I think, wow, that yeah. is much more sustainable, right? That is really sustainable. You know, maybe sustainable should be on how should we lift, live. Clearly, it should be in a sustainable manner. Huh. That's good to put on there. And what does that mean, right? Sustainability, again, means an honesty. It requires an absolute honesty. And I see this a lot because of my work in seafood. When I, I'm, I still sometimes consult in seafood. And when I look at what's going on and, the, frankly, the BS, um, mm. the funds that are, raising, that are being raised for endeavors that you can look at and you know it's not going to work. Right. And then these <laughs> extreme valuations. Yeah. And, and it's so yeah, you look at it and you go, it's not sustainable. There's it's no sustainable. There's no chance this can work. Well, it's going to work in the third quarter. So that you kind of go, you're missing the point. I'm yeah. Missing the point. And it goes back to my dad used to talk about. Uh, so it's my dad's hierarchy of needs that, you know, you have to be warm, dry and well fed. Um, yeah. But really fed. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's, you know, globally, that still doesn't happen, which is hard to understand sometimes. Well, that's a great question. And thanks for asking, kind of literally food for thought. So season four of Hashtag Resilience is about leadership, strength, and energy, and how it's a powerful cornerstone for resilience. So I wanted to learn a little bit about your organization and your team. And if you could tell us a story about kind of where you've seen kind of your strength and energy as the leader of the team and how that kind of fueled what you were doing. Okay, I think I might break that into, could it be a past story? Because the current thing oh, I yeah. have to tell you about, and then this, the, the, the story that comes to mind I'll, I'll, is, is a different one, but yes, from a different team. Um, the story that comes to mind is always the story that I want to hear. So that's okay. perfect. <laughs> okay. Um, so the, the current team, what's remarkable here is it's this, the team is wanting to build human level AI, right? So not just general learning, but where machines are 
cognizant and can interact with us the way you and I are interacting. Now, there's a lot of questions. Is that even possible, right? Like folks like Sir Roger Penrose would say like, no, that consciousness is something else. We cannot just simply create a machine that does that. But this team is, is wanting to do that. And the, the, the boss is very charismatic. And mm. I'm, I'm watching how he's taking, taking something that I would be so discouraged by, by sort of the, the uncertainty of whether we reach the goal or not. And that does not dissuade him at all, right? And he is able to bring together really remarkable people on this, not just charisma, but on this uh, energy that he has himself and this enthusiasm for the task. And the man doesn't sleep. You know, it's not like wow. he's just charismatic and talking about stuff. He's always on the ball, um, whether it is, um, speak, he's a neuroscientist as well. So whether it's speaking at neuroscience conferences or raising funds or whatever. And I, and I watch this with sort of awe because it really does take a certain type of leader to say, hey, the path is not clear, but we are still setting out with all the gear and all the energy and all the enthusiasm and it, and it works. It works. I, I personally am much more about um, also full of enthusiasm, but I need a, a specific vision. And I think that was something that was really nice um, about something like seafood. You're creating a specific product and you know where you're headed. I don't know if I would have the stamina that he has to lead a team in moments where it's like, we don't even know if this is possible, right? So I admire that. You know, some um, people some people are much more comfortable with uncertainty. I and am by nature very comfortable with uncertainty, but it's different when you're trying to carry a whole team. Yeah. And one of the things uh, when you were talking about that, I was thinking the the difference between the benefits of planning and the realities of implementing a plan. And there are lots of mm. quotes about, you know, there are huge benefits in planning, but there's also a point where you have to start. And then pretty quickly, you realize that the planning was really about identifying an objective or a North Star, but you had to start and it's messy. And <laughs> the number of really detailed plans who have gone off exactly that yes. way is, is zero. So, yes, exactly. No, so, um, yeah. And kind of accepting that as a reality, but the it's value right, yeah. of planning. So it sounds like he's very, that's part of his kind of DNA kind of going, well, we do need to plan, but we have to start because once you start, you It'll start moving. Yeah. Right. And that's how Momentum. I actually am laughing because you're describing my life right now in this village of eight houses. I still don't have heat. I still don't have hot running water. I have three wood stoves. It's a massive 500 year old house. And people say like, why don't you sit down with an architect and make all the plans? And I keep thinking, no, that's ridiculous because first I need to live there a year and figure out what's really necessary and the answers will come. Um, but yeah. Interesting. I'm a yeah. cal I'm a calendar year believer myself. Yeah, yeah. I think so. So, so some things just take time and you I think when we're young, we especially this younger generation, I see it with my children, there's this immediacy that's expected. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, I'm laughing because it's it's a real thing, but part of it is kind of 
laughable kind of wow it is it is it, it is it is amusing it's definitely amusing mm. yeah so the story yeah, and, so the story yes the story so um before i moved back to switzerland i was living in the states and working in mexico and honduras a lot and um i discovered something in in our own company that was heinous and horrible and it you know had to do with women being abused inside the company and um at the hands of some of our managers. And this is Honduras. This is not, you know, uh, let's say Seattle, where oh, you can't look at a woman wrong without, without being slapped with harassment. Like things were really happening. And mm. it was it was known apparently by some people. I had this strange, my direct report, the guy right under me there, um, I always had a bad feeling when I worked with him, but I kind of pushed it away because I thought, oh, Magdalena, don't be so dramatic. Uh, he just, he just, you, you guys just don't connect, right? Right. There yep. was something about him that made me ultra uncomfortable. And then um, I was in charge of global sales and logistics, but also of our social investments, so our schools, our public health programs, and um, and that guy was in charge of our social uh, investments there in Honduras. And I, thought, man, it's such a pity because that's something I really love being able to do the outreach and responding to the community's needs. And here's this guy in the way, you know, that I'm supposed to be working with, but we don't have good communication. Well, one night I was on the phone with my counterpart in production when we were talking about sales and logistics. And I out of the blue asked him about the other guy. I said, what do you think about that guy? Hmm. And he told me, oh, Magdalena, I always said, if anyone asks me, I would tell the truth. And I thought, oh no, well, that's not good. <laughs> and then he told me things that then I had to deal with. And my first, my first thing I did was call the ex-president of Honduras because we knew him. And I asked him for advice. And he said, whatever you do, don't touch this issue because it's too big a problem. That guy's sons are in the gangs. You are going to you know, open Pandora's box if you touch this. Mm. I thought, oh, well, thanks for the support. You know? um, but then when you know something like this, you have to. You have to act. And so long story short, there were a lot of hurdles to get over, but I just pressed forward and ended up working with this fantastic organization that came in to do a, we cloaked it under a women's workshop. And then I went about confronting the different men that were involved. And there was a, a strength in me that came that was not based on anyone else holding my hand and encouraging me how to do it, but actually this idea of, this has to be done. And if no one else is dealing with this, I will. And I asked some of the men, the good men later, I said, hey, why did you never say anything? And I said, well, we thought they'd, you know, if I'd confronted that and that guy, they would have killed me or you know, something like that. I mean, along those lines, they would have made a lot of trouble for me. So I understood that. Well, one of the, one of the perpetrators, uh, the others were sent or they left. And then one of them remained and I have, I'm ashamed to say that we just stuck him in a different role so as not to have problems. So he no longer had power over the women, but um, he was still there because we were afraid of the consequences of him being fired. And that bothered me so much. So I told the team, I said, look, guys, we got to get rid of this guy. I know he's our liaison now. Um, I, won't, I won't go into the details of what role he had, but... Um, this guy needs to go. And the team again said, no, no, my Delina, the costs are way too high. If we do not know the ramifications or the consequences of what that would be. 
I said, all right, then I'll come down. And on Wednesday, I'm going to fire him. And you have till Wednesday to join me mm. or I'm going to fire him alone. And so on Monday, I um, went and met with the team and I said, look, guys, I'm going to fire him. So you're either with me. And I think it's really important that you're there because you are the team and you're now the head of the operation here. And if I come from Seattle and show up and, and assert my authority, which I did have, but it's not, it's not healthy. It's much healthier if it comes from you. Yeah. Yeah. So Wednesday morning, I show up at eight ten in the office and the, the, the CEO and the CFO of the Honduran operation were there and they had a stack of papers, like all the legal papers necessary, which I had not even thought of the fact that we would have to have every last, right. you know, I dotted and T crossed. Correct. And they, yep. And they said, Magdalena, your absolute persistence has given us the courage. Those were their words. Like it has mm. given us the courage to do this and we will face whatever consequences there are as a team together. And it will strengthen us. And, you know, I was at that point, just so grateful that they showed up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, real strength and leadership like that, where you kind of go, cause sometimes and I'm, I'm hearing this deep within us. We, we know what we have to do and we know what the right thing is to do. But that that doesn't mean that the entirety of that path is straightforward and there's no questioning, that there's no wonderment about what's going to happen. But making that often making a decision is yeah. the most powerful thing. And you can't. I often wonder kind of when. Because you can't, it's hard, I think, impossible to live our lives in that type of mission constantly. True. Yeah. But I think oh, our, our, that, yeah. our I think our life is made up of moments where we kind of go, you know, I stand for something and this isn't okay. And I am not sure what's eventually going to happen, but I know what I need to do next and I'm going to do it today. And that's really think, a yeah. powerful kind of. Whew. So I have a question for you. Um, do you think it's okay that it is so often, you know, so often life doesn't have any of those mission filled moments. And then, but every now and then you're called to stand up for something or you're, you know, you're just at a certain place and a certain time where you, where it is required of you to act. And, I think there's also times when I think, oh, life has gotten so comfortable and it used to be so much more. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, there is that. Um, comfort is not horrible, but a steady diet of comfort doesn't bring out the best in me. And I, when I look yeah. around, I kind of yeah. go, I don't think it brings out the best in anybody. And there's some things, and I think as we know ourselves, we can listen to kind of that still small voice. And sometimes yeah. you kind of go, yep. My story about that is I wrote, um, my first book was about the um, life and death of our son. Oh, and, I didn't and, know. And I'd like to say, oh, I had this vision of writing oh. this book and I'm going to do it. Well, at the end, 
it was just easier to write it than it was going to be not to write it because at a certain point I knew, and this may be similar to you, that I couldn't live with myself if I didn't write it. And I, you know, there's, there are a million worthy causes and I can't make that type of investment in a million things. That's so interesting. So would you say that that there was something that really uh, describe describe to me that feeling of that where you could and you know and I can do no other. Yes. So you know, I've been thinking about it, and I had done. um, You know, the I love the example of kind of a seed. So there's a moment where the the seed exists. And you kind of go, if it's the seed of an idea, you kind of go, I've got an idea. You know, it mm-hmm. came to me. It, I, in my mm-hmm. world, it comes to me from kind of this, uh, my soul, this kind of the inside, mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. the best of me that's hard to, that doesn't have a lot of vocabulary. Um, but I knew it. And so it quickly you know, it wasn't this long debate. What am I going to do with this seed? It was like, well, I guess I'm going to put it in the ground and water it. And so over time, there was just this moment where I went, man, I, I, I got to do it. So, so, and at the end, it was like, why are you doing it? And I was like, you know, I, I, the decision was made years ago and my comfort in the future is based entirely on how I handle this decision that I've made, mm-hmm. you know, cause the worst thing in the world is mm-hmm. to, to live with the action that you didn't take. You know, that's, so did you, Oh, that's so true. That is so painful. So speaking of taking the action, then did you like, how did you prioritize that? Like, how did you um, dedicate yourself to it? Was it a, was it a side project? What, did it come uh, in spurts? Did it come consistently? You know, the, for a long time, it was more, and I'm making up a word, but uh, there's an old-timey type of coffee maker called a, per, a percolator. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, so for years, it was kind of percolatorial, where <laughs> I would, I started to collect different stories about that time in our lives, and I remembered things. And I normally have breakfast with my friend Frank on Saturdays. So for a long time in the processes, you know, when we process something horrible, it's, I think, rarely, oh, I'll just focus on this and I'll process it real quickly and I'll get moving. This was much more of a ongoing, we talked about the calendar year. And and Mm -hmm. I kind of go, you know, it was years of having breakfast and thinking about things and mm. looking back and going, man, well, that, that one moment really mattered. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I had all these stories and then I shuffled them around in a way that kind of made sense to me. And I started writing and I'm able to write, but it is work. I mean, <laughs> it, it is, is work. It is really it is work. work. So, but the decision was made and I knew in my heart that I could mm-hmm. not do it. And when you were telling mm-hmm. your story, there was yes. a moment where the, 
veil was pulled back and you had, you knew something you didn't know before. And it wasn't, it doesn't sound like you spent months going, I wonder if I should do something about this. It sounds like it was, I got to do something. And then the months were, I don't know what to do, but I'll, and I'm an incrementalist by nature. So I kind of go, well, I'll figure out what to do next. Right. And that's what I did there. I just went, yeah. okay, here we go. And Which then is, it was no, 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 like hurdle, hurdle, hurdle. And I just kept going, all right then, next. Yeah, right. which is similar in some ways to uh, your boss who's, yeah, you know, he may mm-hmm. have had a moment where he was like, well, we're going to do this. How's it going to work? Not really sure, but <laughs> I know what we're going to do. Sure. I know what we're going to do yeah. this month. So I wanted to talk a little bit about AI and I'd like to start yeah. with, you know, cause it makes you sound so brilliant. Um, there's a Latin phrase, quis custode ipsos custodes, which is, well, who will watch the watchers? Mm-hmm. 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 Um, and exactly in your work with ethics and AI, you know, there are all sorts of questions about, you know, what's the future? Is it, you know, three months from now? Is it a century from now? You know, where, uh, where does ethics fit in? Who should be yeah. talking about it? Yeah. You know, and I, kind of, yeah. you know, there are issues of regulation and I kind of go, wow, well, but regardless of AI, if you can figure out how to make people around the globe do things, you, you've really accomplished something um, or to behave within a, a band of uh, accepted. Uh, right. And behavior. I think that there's many. Yeah. And I think there's many that are trying to control human behavior. Right. So, um, I mean, Shoshana. Tsuboff in the age of surveillance capitalism, she does a brilliant job of discussing that, how, you know, some of the the architects of um, artificial intelligence, they really believe that kind of like B.F. Skinner, that, you know, we are, we are animals that can be observed and pattern. We have patterns that can be manipulated and that's all, and we ought to, you know, and one of the guys at MIT, he he says, uh, you know, not only can we uh, control human behavior, but we ought to. You know, we must. And I think that's quite, I mean, I think it's a fair assessment of human behavior, if, especially if we have done away with any idea of God imbuing each human with, with dignity. I mean, I think it's a completely fair thing to say, yeah, uh, we're these, these destructive creatures that are not living sustainably, right? They don't want this simplicity and uh, they need to be controlled uh, for their own good. And I think that's, that is sad, right? We, you see it already mm. in um, already how we raise our children, right? We don't expect that much of them. We don't give them the kind of responsibility that prior generations gave their children. And I think it does make weaker humans. And so I think when you say, you know, who should be talking about ethics? I think, well, we all should be talking about the ethics of AI because AI is already part of our lives. It's going to play an increasing role in our lives. And it should not be the sort of technology that is being developed by uh, a few, which is exactly what it is right now, right? And then foisted upon the human population in a way that will be very difficult to return from, 
right? So it, it will be very difficult to go back. And um, so, so when you say like, who should be talking about it? I think the lay people should be speaking about ethics. I was on a, I was on a panel recently with a, a, a lawyer and a futurist and the lawyer mm. was saying, oh, we don't actually need about AI. And the lawyer was saying, the juror, um, she was um, also a judge. She was saying, you know, what we, we don't need to talk about ethics and morals. What we need to talk about is getting the, having the right regulations. And if you have the right laws, we don't even have to talk about morals and ethics. And more, <laughs> I'm glad you're laughing, right? Because the obvious thing that's missing there, right, is, and I said, well, we are still in a democracy and we don't get to the right laws unless we have an informed public. Well, and right. you know, I kind of go, how do you make the regulations without the things that were just said you don't need? So the collective kind of morality and ethics and kind of, you know, you, the regulation rests on top of that. It doesn't right. replace it entirely. <laughs> right, right, right. But but it's a, it was dismaying to hear that comment because I thought, oh, no. You know, and of course, okay, let's forget the term morals, because that's already, it's, but, and ethics is really probably what I, what I keep saying to our team. And when we have conversations outside is, you know, we use the term ethics, but what we mean is let's examine the implications and let's ask ourselves, where do we really want to be going? Where's AI fantastic tool? And where is, where is it something that we need to curb, right? Nobody wants to curb anything because of, it's kind of the tragedy of the commons, you know, if, all right, I won't put my cows out there to pasture because I don't want to ruin the, the field, but then everyone else will, you know, <laughs> yeah. so I might as well participate. Um, so, and I also think of AI like a life partner that we have to have a relationship with now. Like we can't ignore this, this partner that is becoming a partner in humanity, conscious or not, right? Even if it's just these fantastic algorithms and increasing data management, we are relying on this other and and what is that healthy what is that our healthy interaction going to be so a, an interesting do you have an example of here's some ai that is in existence that's being that's having an impact yeah okay um already i mean yeah 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 i mean there's so many uh, the one that sprang to mind right now is just like in health, right? Mm -hmm. um, so Apple's already gotten into it, right? And he, um, Tim Cook said that Apple's greatest con uh, contribution to mankind will be about health, right? Which is what his, his vision is that Apple's going to be getting the data of body and mind constantly, right? And is going to be able to advise so... Uh, advise the human and, and the insurance companies and every everyone just with this surveillance, right? This perfect yeah. surveillance. And that sounds so seductive because, oh, it's our health. But you wouldn't believe how much within the AI community I keep hearing about, you know, they'll say, well, we really want to do that, but we're going to first talk about it for the sake of medicine because everyone will swallow that pill, right? Everyone will allow that. Or, you know, Amazon also, um, it's building clinics, Right. And it has it's developed. It, it uses Alexa already to give medical advice when the first sneeze occurs. I mean, that's crazy. And they didn't they buy they bought that Internet pharmacy pill pack, I think, in 2018. Yeah. Um, 
Right. So, so, so it's these companies that they're, you know, they're not great managers out there really caring for their neighbors. And they are really um, using AI to manage all this data and to suggest how people should be managed. Right. And I, what, what strikes me is that we have no tolerance for vulnerability. We just assume that if we make ourselves impervious to illness and all this, that somehow we've, figured out life yeah so here's everything is an algorithmically solvable problem yeah so so here's a here's a a thought i had when you were describing that so well um so we're getting a lot more real data about our behavior so kind of what do we do with that and an old school in health example is in England, when they went to socialized medicine, if someone, mm-hmm. if someone had lung cancer and they were still smoking, they wouldn't treat them. They'd kind of go, we can't afford to pay for cancer treatment for people who won't quit smoking. Right. Who aren't doing their part. Yeah. So, so that's a example. And if I, I think in general, that's an accurate um, story. But now we have a lot more information. So you kind of go, well, we know you, we gave you this medication. You haven't been taking it. So we're not going to treat you anymore until you take it. Or you've been doing everything we asked. Fantastic. Now you get this. So suddenly there's this, all this information about how good of a patient are you being? Are you? But how scary is that, right? Yeah, and you kind of go, I, I, <laughs> I think that would be great for the system to have about other people, <laughs> you know. But you gotta exactly, go. <laughs> exactly, exactly, or for health, right? So, yeah, um, yeah, you know, yeah, Miss Miss Johnson, you haven't been taking whatever and your, your medication. No wonder that you have this, and um, you know, we're we're not gonna we're not going to give you another treatment until you've actually done this one, completed this one. That's, that sounds so great. But the implication there again is you, 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 you extend that across so many areas of our lives and you start to think what agency, what responsibility are we still going to have? And don't we want to retain that agency and yeah. responsibility? And yeah. do we want to live in a system where we are, but where we're watched uh, and where we are just little, um, avatars that have to have to exactly we're so watched that we have to play along i mean we laugh about china's social credit system or we shudder but really (laughs) what are we what are we quietly entering into right i mean that's and so these are the kind of conversations that we at lab 42 want to have which is to and i think look the other thing about asking the right kind of questions is who's going to do it right china certainly isn't um, China is bent on on surveillance and domination and becoming a dominant power by controlling. And then there's the U.S., which is that surveillance capitalism that Zuboff mentions, where it's let's let's use this for commercial uh, success. Nobody nobody in Silicon Valley wants to be wants to be halted with with these kind of questions. And and here in Europe, um, you know, they're so hell bent on getting the regulation right that. They're hurting themselves on the innovation front, but I do think your Europe does have maybe this in-between role mm. um, of playing the the philosophical partner, right? Of kind of 
showing what kind of regulation is healthy. It's, it's, it's a very difficult one, right? Because I don't actually love the idea of a whole lot of regulation because it does dampen innovation. It just does, right? Yeah. That's why America is as strong as it is. Um, but I do see this role for the Europeans, especially the, the neutral Swiss, to say, hey, we're just as, we're just as technically capable we're just as wealthy. We can keep up with the big guys on some things, at least in the conversations. So let's yeah. let's play that role. Well, as we as we go to our next part, I want to leave you with kind of a question or a conundrum, which is, I think people hate being told what to do. It's yeah. kind of part of human nature, and that yeah. really that really yeah. is at cross purposes with uh, a lot of the better data and if kind of the AI piece, a key component is better, more accurate, real-time data. Yeah, people don't like that. <laughs> and got to go, where in our human nature or is it just so blatantly counterproductive? And I, I have no idea what to do with that. But I look at myself and I go, man, that does not always bring out the best in me. And yet, it's always there. You know, how can I, how can I become, oh, this is a nice bridge for us. So when I go to yoga, I am very happy to be told what to do and to follow instructions. And that's a community that I belong to. So our 531 plan, the five is we want to have five people in our inner circle that we're close to, that we depend on, that we can sort things out with, we can process with individually. And we we need to belong to three communities as kind of a, a, a number. And they're communities that we invest in and harvest from, like yoga. And we need to have kind of a core belief. Um, and it's, you know, the core belief is really more about if we don't stand for something, we'll fall for anything. Um, there's not a, a magic element to that, but there's a stability element to that. So if uh, if there's that's our plan, you know, which one of these kind of resonates with you today? And do you see that connecting with uh, your leadership? Mm, I, yeah, I, I would think I would say core core belief mm. because I think there's certain things that uh, let's say especially if you're resilient and you keep going through all these different changes and you pop back up you come back up you come back up and you, certain things then stay and solidify certain core beliefs and they they I think they make who you are more than a community or the five people do even though those are so significant but ultimately you can um I was just very sober today when I thought about all the people that I've left in the States who I love and who are such a massive part of my life and they still mm. are. But it, over time you do realize, oh, you're, a lot of your energy and love and connection goes to the new people around you, right? So that you, you change communities, which is awesome and inspiring and sharpening. But I think those core beliefs actually strengthen over time and they, they inform the leadership, they inform um, collaborations, they, they inform everything in our lives. Yeah, so kind of the what what parts of you did you take with you when you moved, or in a right, in, right. In, in strategic planning, uh, which 
I do a good amount of work with schools. Schools have to kind of take a look at themselves on a regular basis, you know, kind of less every 10 years, I would say is not often enough. Every year is too much, but somewhere in there where they kind of go, well, what are we doing? Because we've always done it that way that we need to jettison. And yeah, what are, yeah. what, what are we doing? Because we've always done it because it's, it's a core part of who we are that we have to retain. So that yeah. winnowing, that sharpening, I think you used, which is such a great word, you know, kind of, um, or what's the metallurgy word for uh, when you work on, when you make gold more pure, what's that word? Uh, removing the um, gloss. Yeah, going the, the dross. Yeah, removing, removing the, the dross. dross. Yeah, so that, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. for the core belief, that's so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think and, I th and I think if you don't, I think the right amount of change lets that process continue. And in an absence, uh, mm -hmm. we end up in kind of a reef of uh, dulling uh, comfort. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Well, fantastic. Well, so as we kind of get towards the end of our conversation, is there a question you'd like to ask me? Hmm. What? What's the most encouraging thing about doing these podcasts? Is it um, sort of the things you learn yourself? Is it the outreach that you know it has? Is it, oh, no, 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 better question, deeper question. Um, you know, there's so many podcasts and there's so many, and I often wrestle with like, adding to what's all the content that's out there right like how do you how do you deal with that thought like oh i there's already so much content out there you know i it's tremendously fun and self-serving and one of the things i like that answer <laughs> and one of the um one of the things that i in my kind of embracing some change have looked at is, you know, how do we get to know people? Yeah. Um, and you kind of go, well, I don't know. And for a long time I would go, well, you get to know people in one of two ways. You either get to know them in a foxhole type of way where with sometimes things go sideways and you really learn a lot about the people you're with in terms of how do they respond to that? Because some people unify and whatever the right thing is to do, they work on that. And some people flee. Yeah. Uh, but you find out a lot about who they are and who I am. So that the kind of when things hmm. go sideways. And the other thing is much more long to, longitudinal. So you know, I get together with some friends that I've known for 40 years. So we might not have had lots of connection. It's not the case that we've connected every week for 40 years worth of weeks. But that time of knowing each other when we we're younger and then middle aged, when you didn't have children, when we had children, when we didn't mm -hmm. have work, mm -hmm. when we had work, when we all mm -hmm. of the... Mm -hmm. Pieces, and I find that most people uh, have enjoyed many nice things, and most people have had some hardship. So those mm -hmm. things over time. But this is a really fun way to get to know people better. 
and to kind of I go, like oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and, yeah. you know, the work I do with the Y Institute, that's you can I can learn a lot about someone with that algorithm. So that's kind of an interesting. I really appreciate it. Yeah. 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 I so I really appreciate it doing getting, that exercise with you. Yeah. So getting to know people better uh, is fun. And, you know, you never you never know what good will come from something you you do with a song in your heart. So that, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well, now we're at our tremendously great quick strike round. So, and we'll put <laughs> the answers to these in uh-huh. the episode notes. So what book are you reading? Uh, I'm rereading Hannah Arendt. Actually a couple of hers right now, the portable Hannah Arendt, which is a compilation of some of her essays. And she's most famous for, um, analyzing Nazi perpetrators, and you know, she she used the phrase "the banality mm. of evil," and a lot of people at the time were very angry with her. You know, there's nothing banal about it, but um, her point was, you know, there's a lot of people who just don't think, who don't wrestle with that question of, you know, how my question is like that. How then shall we live? And they just went along with it, and they made excuses for the evil that they participated in. But actually, her writing is. It's phenomenal. Mm. Um, and then I'm also rereading very tech, uh, a 500-page book called Digital Transformation and Ethics because the author and I are trying to whittle it down to a 25-page summary because so that every man can read it and not every man is going to read 500 pages. So very, very, very few will tackle that. So making that more accessible, that's a, that's, it seems like there's a, a uh, if you OCR'd it, there's a, machine out there that could do it for you um yeah so what uh yeah no kidding um so when you really need to get going what music do you listen to oh when i need to get going yeah that completely depends on the mood uh need to get going as in get up and go in the mornings i don't know my i my favorite band and if i could only listen to one group it would be dire straits Wow. <laughs> um, but then, you know. That's a favorite of mine. That's now, yeah, me too. that is my favorite. Um, the, but like, you know, there's certain music that just moves you. And I think that there's one, there's one piece of music that really moves me. It's not what I listen to when I want to get up and go and fight. Um, it's actually kind of the opposite. It's when I mm. want to feel the beauty of it all or... Um, it's it's Chopin and it's his piano concerto number one, especially the romance movement. It's so um, nuanced, and I would say it touches on the ineffable. It's also very romantic, but it's mm-hmm. it's really moving. And there's there's nothing yeah. better than beauty. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is a piece that is that says. So much mm. it describes sort of the highest ideals of love and beauty. I think for uh, for me. Right? Well, I'll, I'll I'll look forward to listening to that today. And and Martha Argerich, she, when she plays it, you have to look for her. She's the pianist, and she plays it with so much feeling. And the recording is an older one, so recordings you find of that of her playing that piece are a little bit grainy, but sublime. Martha. Argerich. Argerich, yeah, with a CH at the end. Argerich. Argerich. Fantastic. Thank you. It's nice to get 
the right person doing the right uh, music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Boy, boy, it matters. So what's the best advice you ever got? Oh, best advice I ever got. Hmm. <laughs> Man. Um, you know, I had a teacher once that he was my trigonometry teacher and he was a wonderful man. And uh, I was not your typical girl in school and some of the other girls were, they loved just making me feel uh, not as, you know, not mm. as accepted as, as the girl gang. Um, but I had a good mind, head on my shoulders and, and the teachers appreciated that. And Mr. Polino, he came to me once and I didn't even realize he had observed what the other girls were doing. And he pulled me aside and he said, rise above it, but don't look down. And it was, it was such a good, like I hadn't even thought of looking down, but, but also like rise above it. And then as you're rising above it and it's not affecting you, don't look down. And that just came to mind right now. But, you know, I think the best advice in general, which nobody specifically gave me is sort of to be gracious and then also to take everything with a grain of salt, especially in this world of so much bullshit is just uh, respond with graciousness. And then also everything that's put out there, take it with a grain of salt, try to figure out what is the actual truth behind it. Yeah, there's a there's a lot to be said about not overreacting to things. Just you know, give it a give it twenty four hours. You know, don't and to examine it, right? Yeah, and, and, but that's and to examine it. Yeah, don't go for the bait. You know, part of the don't look yeah. down. Um, so I think it's fun to think about either what's the world's biggest problem, or what solution would you like to offer the world? And it may. It may be the work you're doing now. Well, I think the work I'm doing now is very much related, but fundamentally uh, below, when you peel everything away, the biggest problem I think is, is this lack of courage and lack of principles. Mm. Everyone is going along with certain BS, right? Because in the short term, it's going to make money. It doesn't matter if it's just truly sustainable, right? They can slap the term sustainable on or something. They can slap the term equity or whatever, all these terms on there, but there isn't um, the courage to really look things, look at things as they truly are and deal with them in a very honest and difficult manner, which is what we do need to be doing. And we need to be pulling together much more instead of accusing and pointing fingers at these groups or those people. Um, there needs to be much more humble awareness of what does it mean to be human, right? Especially yeah. in the face of artificial intelligence coming alongside us. And what are those things that we want to preserve about being human? What are those beautiful aspects of humanity that we need to all be honest about and say they're not, it's, it's complicated. It isn't controllable. It shouldn't be controlled, but it's, it's worth preserving. Yeah. What's our kind of like the strategic plan? What yeah. are the parts of us that we must, that we must retain? Thank you yeah. so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Watson. Yeah. So at the end, we say goodbye, listeners. So if you would just say goodbye, listeners. <laughs> goodbye, listeners. Thank you. I forgot there were listeners because it's just <laughs> a nice conversation with you. Thank you for joining Hashtag Resilience. Please reach out to me with questions and subscribe so that we can help fortify your resilience going forward. 
I'd love to hear from you. Go to hashtag resilience.com, that's all one word, to learn more. Links and details are in the episode notes. Spread the word 